0: Hey guys, I hope you've had a great day so far. My name is Blackamora and that means you are watching and or listening to the Streamcast. Here at the Streamcast, we like to produce a lot of banging content such as live streams and podcasts, including this one. This one has a very special guest, more on that later. Right now, I want to let you know that you could win your very own copy of Blood on the Clock Tower. With an RRP of $145, this would make one hell of a saving if you are a board gamer. Or it could make an amazing gift for a loved one. All you have to do to enter this giveaway is very, very simple. And at the end of this podcast, it will be made clear how you can enter this giveaway. So make sure you get comfy, grab a snack, and enjoy the streamcast in three, two, one. Hey yo! Welcome to another edition of the Streamcast. I'm the Poppy Grower, and I'm
1: here with... Whoa, 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 whoa! I didn't know we were doing like blend the clock tower names. So I thought we were just gonna do like regular board game. I- I'm the saint then.
0: Ah, uh, kid all saints. Okay, and <laughs> today we're joined by a very special guest, the purveyor of misbehavior, the liar who's preaching to the choir man from the pandemonium institute and one of the faces of blood on the clock tower one of my favorite board games of all time it's daddy ben burns
2: hello thank you very much for having me lads i'm honored to be here
0: Thanks for coming. we really appreciate it yes yes uh so i mean i kind of just did it there but for anyone who doesn't know who you are or what you do would you like to give them a quick intro
2: Sure, yeah, I'm the I'm the kind of community guy for the Pandemonium Institute, which is an Australian board game company who have designed and produced Blood on the Clock Tower, which is a supernatural social deduction game uh, for five to twenty players plus one GM, and it's uh, it's a little unique in the sense that it um, it kind of eschews a lot of the things about the genre and changes a few things around. But I think we're going to talk about that later, right? So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you the sales pitch. Uh, you know, I hope you've already bought it. If you haven't, then frankly, I'm offended uh, and we should end this interview now.
1: <laughs> wow, that would be our shortest podcast ever. <laughs> really bad at least. <laughs> of
0: course, man like Isaac to my left there, already has one of the copies of the game and yep. I've seen it enough times. I've Try played him. it enough times. Oh, no, that's
2: wrong game. Yeah. <laughs> What I think about go. that is it's still it is. in its wrapping as well. <laughs> 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 Who has Catan still in its original wrapping?
1: <laughs> so to be fair, like I didn't like Catan for the longest time So when I worked at a board game cafe, um, it wasn't the best maintained game, so I kind of just like looked away from it. And mm-hmm. then um, there's a little like board game uh, club that we've got going at work. Played it online. Mm-hmm. My goodness, Catan is one of the best games ever made. Yeah, I see it now. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it is.
2: It's earned its its position as sort of like the
1: default euro, hasn't it? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I mean, I don't know if anyone else has this stance, but I think it's. I think it's just superior monopoly. It's what monopoly wants to be, but I can't because monopoly sucks.
2: I kind of feel that way about uh, Lords of Waterdeep. It's like monopoly, but for nerds. I don't know if you've played Lords of Waterdeep. No, I'm gonna search um, that now. Uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm. I'm a fan. I'm a fan.
1: Sorry, I've totally
2: derailed this. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, this is exactly what we're here for. I get
0: the feeling there's, there's going to be a lot of different games recommended throughout this podcast. So, yeah, this is it. <laughs> so we're going to go back to what Streamcast is more familiar with, video games. And we're going to go back to your earliest game, Ben. Do you remember your first ever game and what was it?
2: Yeah. Uh, so when I was... Um, so I, I actually... Video games were my thing up until sort of four or five years ago. That's the industry I worked in. So I've been obs- obsessed with computer games since I was a little kid. Uh, and when I was about maybe three or four, I was just... I begged, was begging my dad for a computer because my uncle had one and I thought they were cool. I didn't even really know... What they wear, but I was like, I want, you know, the keyboard and the mouse and big screen. And, you know, I want. I just thought that stuff was cool. And we went to a car boot sale, which for any American viewers is like a swap meet slash flea market type thing. And uh, got an Atari XCGS, which was Atari's last ever 8-bit computer. And I've still got it. I've just moved house. It's in a box somewhere over there. I'd show it to you if it wasn't boxed up. But uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, an Atari XCGS, and I remember vividly that uh I I played Donkey Kong. It had like Donkey Kong, had a load of cartridges, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, Bug Hunt, uh, Defender, just asteroids, loads of those like classic Atari arcade games. And that was my first experience of computer games. And then I very quickly graduated to like my uncle's PC and I was playing Wolfenstein 3D and stuff like that. And yeah, but love at first sight basically. But yeah, I vividly remember setting up that Atari in my grandparents' living room and playing Donkey Kong
0: nice and that's a great first game to go with the atari so let's talk about your favorite video games because i'm sure a man like yourself has played many many games so can you whittle it
2: down to one or three or five maybe so i think like if when I, when people say what's your favorite game of all time <clears throat> it's a kind of difficult thing to answer because like it, you know do i do i say which one i think is the best do i say which one has the most nostalgia for me you know, it's kind of like when someone's like, what's the greatest guitarist of all time? And you're like, well, you want to say Jimi Hendrix, right? Because he's he's like seminal, he created so many... But actually, there are plenty of guitarists today that would probably wipe the floor with him in terms of technical ability. So it's like a difficult one to answer, isn't it? But I think if someone put a gun to my head and was like, pick one now, I'd probably <laughs> blurt out Final Fantasy VII simply because um, that game was... It, it, it was the first time i became self aware that i was genuinely invested like on an emotional level in the plight of a fictional group of people and I, and it, and i i was like i remember playing it and thinking i care this much because this is a computer game if this was a book or a film i'd probably be less invested but i've actually walked them through midgar out of the slums and into the into the overworld map i've walked them around this world i've seen their trials and tribulations at, and it like It was just a a sort of real eye-opening moment for me, and it was probably the moment when I started to seriously think that I wanted to work in the games industry. So I've got to go with Final Fantasy VII, I think.
0: Beautiful answer. Yes, one of the pillars in the gaming industry. Isaac, I know you had some questions for Daddy Ben. Would you like to shoot them?
1: Yeah, just a cheeky quick one. Um, According to Eurogamer, done a a little bit of research (laughs) on you. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) I love this Um, You're confident that there's going to be a Sega (laughs) renaissance in the console market Um, Why is that? Well, uh, Isaac
2: that's what we in the uh, industry call a joke Uh, (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: There's
2: definitely not going to be a renaissance, Uh, I I hate to break it to you uh, but I don't think Sega are going to come back in the console market it's been a while, Uh, but I am a huge lover of Sega, and again, if I hadn't just moved house. These shelves here are going to have all my retro stuff on it, and I've got um, I've got loads of Master System, Mega Drive, Saturn, and uh, uh, Dreamcast games and Game Gear games. So I'm a big, I'm a big, big Sega fan. I grew up with Sega, um, so yeah, I love Sega. But s- sadly, they are not going to make a big comeback. But I'd love to be proven wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool to hear. I think uh, you might be a bigger Sega fan than Andy is, which is uh, a rare sight.
0: Definitely. Oh, really? I've only owned the Dreamcast just because of. Obviously, I was not uh, born in the right time to enjoy the Game Gear, the Saturn, and the Mega Drive. <laughs> so I only got the Dreamcast, which was the happiest accident in my life. And I'm on a quest to either get a Dreamcast Mini or a Dreamcast. So I, I love the Sega consoles myself.
2: Oh man, yeah, the Dreamcast is so good. Like it's Sega, Sega of repeat, Sega were repeatedly a victim of their own. Um, I guess success because there were the, a lot of the stuff on there was ahead of its time, right? Yeah, the Dreamcast did a lot of things years before. I mean, you could totally argue that the little uh, was it like the UMD or whatever it is, the little thing that slots like into the in, controller, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you could take that out and play games on it out and about, like it was a little Tamagotchi. And when you slotted it in, it had like mm-hmm. info coming up. And really, we didn't see something similar to that until the Wii U came out, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When we suddenly, again, someone thought, hey, let's put a little screen in the controller for extra info. Uh, But yeah, they were just, I I feel like Sega were just ahead of their time over and over again. Um, And and they obviously did a bunch of other things wrong. But yeah, that was the thing that they sadly did wrong that was right.
0: Yes, there's often times where you can be ahead of the game in a bad way, where the market isn't quite ready for it. Um, Yeah. But the, I, I feel now people are ready to accept and get those Mega Drive Minis. And mini, I think the Mega Drive Mini 2 is coming out soon. So, yeah, wildly successful yeah mini console. let's move on to board games. Oh, actually, no, let's go back to video games, because you mentioned you were a developer. So what games have you worked on?
2: So um, I went to uni and studied, studied, when I was 18, I studied computer games programming uh, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, mainly, mainly because um, the lecturers there were not at all interested in games, uh-huh. so it was like day one of video game programming uni. Right, lads, we're going to get you to make a, going to get you to program a system that handles airplanes coming into an airport. And it's like, what? <laughs> I don't, don't want to do that. I want to make games. <laughs> so after a, after a year and a bit of that, I dropped out and started again on games audio design, which is very very specific. Um, I went and did three year course in that. And when I finished, me and a, a lad that I went to uni with called Alex started our own indie studio where we were trying to produce a um, point and click adventure called Go to Hell Dave about a man called Dave who dies in a car crash <laughs> and wakes up in hell and is trying to sort of get make his way out. But Satan's missing and hell's turned into this. Sort of ugly ass council estate type place. It was very, it was very <laughs> bizarre. It was a very bizarre concept, but it was right at the very beginning of the uh, like Kickstarter era, and it was back when Steam Greenlight was a brand new thing. And so we came through Steam Greenlight and we we're going to kickstart it, but we ran out of capital, we ran out of money, and that was basically my only experience as a de- developer. Because after that, I kind of stumbled into games journalism, and and that's I worked in that sphere for a very long time. Uh, until I ended up stumbling into community managing a board game. How
0: do you do that? How do you stumble into games journalism and then stumble into board games? Obviously, there's a lot of transferable skills, but yeah, tell me a bit about that.
2: Well, um, a lot of hard work, um, yeah. a lot of support from family members. Uh, but mostly, I think it was just that I, I, I'm not someone who can apply myself to something that I don't care about. I've, every job that I've had that has been, you know, your kind of normal day-to-day job, working in, in a bar or, you know, selling stuff in a in a Curry's or something like that, I've just not been that good at it because I just I can't apply myself to things that I'm not passionate about, which and I, I'm not for a minute suggesting that, that you know, these jobs are, are like, not worthy of, of passion or whatever. You know, there are plenty of people out there who are the right people to do those sort of things who, who you know, enjoy doing it and get passionate about it. But I'm just, I've always had like an inability to focus unless I'm truly invested in something. So there's kind of no other choice for me other than to just go and do the things that I wanted to do and hope that they would lead to enough money to put a roof over my head. And I still kind of feel like I'm living on borrowed time with this here. I feel—I think we all to some degree have a bit of imposter syndrome, right? But I do kind of feel like any moment someone's going to be like, hang on a minute, he's having fun. Stop <laughs> him now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. But that, yeah, that's I'm just, sorry. That's that's basically a non-answer, but it's the only one I have.
0: No, it's good because you provided a bit of a background about you know your motivation and stuff. And it is a blessing and a curse being able to just live with your heart in your sleeve, and you can't fake stuff. You got to be passionate about stuff, right? Um, so I hear it. I like it. Let's uh, talk about board games because you talked about a lot about the video game stuff. What's your first board game that you ever remember playing? Oh, Isaac, actually, did you have any more questions? This was you
1: um said you were the game dev band and I, I was on your Twitter the other day. Uh were, were you the one that made Gayblade, by the way? Or is this some completely random? <laughs> what is Gayblade? I don't know, it was on your page. <laughs> was it? Yeah.
2: What? Uh, you posted oh, it was, up. Did, is that something I shared? Yeah. Oh it right. Like, no, no. I, was that no, you I suddenly seen
1: Play my game, guys? Please, or <laughs> something out of nowhere?
2: No, I think I just noticed it. Thought <laughs> it was an amusing little twist on Beyblade, and and shared it. Now I'm afraid I can't claim to have made that. Well, uh, I've, I've only I've got like I've got like two or three video game credits to my name, uh, and and only. One of them, no, only two of them are games that actually made it to market, unfortunately. But I did a bit of work as a com- composer for a few games as well because you know, games audio was my degree. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I can't claim to have made Gay Blade, although I wish I had come up with something that clever.
1: <laughs> well, congrats on the two credits, that's really impressive. Thank, thank you, <laughs> than both.
2: yeah. Uh, are you allowed to say what games they were? Yeah, so uh, there was Go to Hell Dave. Um, I did the music for a mobile game called Piston Rush, which was a game created, it was commissioned by a company. All oh, right, hang on, I'm going to make, try and get this right. There's some of these details might be wrong, but as to the best of my knowledge, it was commissioned by a company that made stuff that cleaned like axles and gears and stuff for motor vehicles and wow. big machinery. Mm-hmm. And so uh and they like basically needed a tax write-off essentially. So they commissioned a mobile <laughs> game to be made for their executives that was in some way uh tangentially related to the to the business that they had. So it was called Piston Rush and it was basically like a kind of wipeout style futuristic you know, flying around on a car, F-Zero X type thing. And I composed all the music for it. And it was all like proper dirty drum and bass with loads of uh, nice. like big, wow, wow, womping bass and stuff in it, which is a lot of fun to compose. Uh, and then the other game that I have a credit on is called, I think it's called Pixel Pixel Princess Blitz or something like that. But all I, that was, that's like, um that was like a roguelike. Have you ever played Faster Than Light, FTL? I've not. No That's all that. ah, right, Yeah, you should check it out. It's a good game. It's a good little indie wow. game. But basically, it's a bit like that. In that, um, you play as like a character who is moving from encounter to encounter, and each encounter is randomly generated. Mm. And so, I wrote a load of like quest text for various that would that would slot together to make randomly generated encounters. Uh, but yeah, sorry. As you're probably learning now, um, this is a lot more boring than it sounds <laughs> from the. <laughs> From the anecdote of I have a few credits.
0: <laughs> no, uh, everyone's journey is unique, and everyone gets to work on different games. So it's actually quite cool that you worked in games that I've never heard of. So yeah, it's not boring. Well, thank you,
1: That's all. Yeah. I'm gonna check out these games and reference them every time we uh, play Clock Tower oh, together. Brilliant! Can't wait! Can't wait for that, Isaac. <laughs> just uh,
2: let me just message all the people we know and get you uninvited from everything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: did you have any uh more video game questions isaac for ben uh video questions uh no i think all my questions are now related to uh clock tower so i'll just i'll just wait all right
0: we now make the shift to board games ben do you remember your first ever board game
2: Yeah, so um, I was actually, uh, so I was kind of, I I was lucky that my parents and my grandparents and my uncle, who lived with my grandparents, were all like very involved in my upbringing. We all lived very close to each other. We all kind of, they all sort of shared responsibility for looking after me and my brother. Um, So I actually kind of, there was already loads of board games around uh when i was a kid and i remember really vividly really young age my dad would come home from work from like a 12-hour shift in a factory and because he was an awesome dad he'd, he would make time to play board games with me and so there was a few of them but uh the one that i remember best was one called Cross Over the bridge uh and it was like a little it was just a simple little kids thing where it was kind of like um What's it? It's snakes and ladders in a in a sense that you would like move around the edge. Or oh, in fact, actually, it was kind of like a very simple talisman. You'd move around the edge of this structure, and if you landed on a square that had a bridge that connected you to it to the inner tiles that you would move around, you would then cross over that bridge, and you it was just rolling dice and hoping that you landed on the right thing to keep crossing over bridges until you got to the center of the board. But what we what my dad used to do is he, he would fill the recesses where the the bridges crossed over we'd fill them with actual water so that it looked like you were really crossing over little rivers and uh and yeah i just i i think that that game was uh, had a huge impact on me because it made me realize or i probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it this well at the time but looking back it made me realize how, how fun tactility is and how fun engaging in the fantasy is. And it's why, like, I mean, I'm surrounded by, look, I've got a little Warhammer here. I bought a load of coins to play for my next D&D session so that I can give my players coins. Because And and that all because of those experiences, I realized that you can really engage in, in the fantasy if you just, if you want to, if you just put a little bit of effort in and just fill in those little little rivers, I think really taught me that.
0: Well, that's a brilliant answer. This. So much, than not they? A good dad, tactiles,
2: creativity. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to option it for my next novel, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you're right.
0: I think just sometimes physical media just helps you engage with the fantasy a bit more. Um, and I guess that's lesser. So for video gamers, but, you know, that still applies and, I think there's a there's a whole world of imagination, not to be cheesy, to be had when you just get your teeth sunk into a game that you really care about.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So let's let's talk about the best board games that you've played. What are some of the top echelon? And you know, if you want to talk about <coughs> games that you think would be a genre or cop out answers, yeah, let's hear them too. D and D and stuff like that. Let's, <laughs> let's hear the the best experiences that you've had.
2: So, um. When it comes to board games, I suppose if we if we're considering pen and paper RPGs and and like party games and social deduction games, if we're considering them a separate entity from board games, like games that actually have a board and a bunch of components and stuff like that, I think my favorite board game has to be Lords of Waterdeep. I'm a huge fan of this game. Uh, it's really cool. It's set in the city of Waterdeep, which is a which is a pretty famous city from Dungeons and Dragons kind of default setting Forgotten Realms. So Waterdeep's a city in there, and, and in Waterdeep, the, the city is run by a bunch of masked lords, a bunch of like influential and wealthy people who, when they go and do official business, they wear masks and veils so that nobody knows who they are. And in, in, in Lords of Waterdeep, you play as one of those masked lords with an agenda, and you're essentially a quest giver, and you send your agents around Waterdeep hiring... Uh, clerics, fighters, rogues, and wizards to complete quests for you. So you're basically putting together D and D parties and sending them off on quests. And but you can also purchase property in Waterdeep and develop buildings and stuff. So it's got a bit of a sort of monopoly. That's why I called it Nerds Monopoly uh, earlier on because it's there's a lot of things that you can do. But ultimately, it's a euro resource management game. But and this is this goes back to what I was saying about having the coins and the the water in the rivers and stuff. It because it's such a well fleshed out setting, and because there's all these cool little minis and, and a beautiful map and all this stuff, you can really get involved in the in the fantasy behind it. You can enjoy pretending that you really are a mass lord, and that's I think that's why I like it, and that's why I prefer it over other Euro games. Because a lot of Euro games, I, I tend to feel a kind of soulless. It's like you'll show up and they'll say, hey, we're going to play this game. It's uh, set like in 18th century in Tsarist era Russia and you're a peasant farmer. Did, 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 and then you look at it and it's just a bunch of like nondescript cubes on a map that, that are in no way related <laughs> to the way it's been sold. And and while I've no doubt that the mechanics for this fictional Tsarist Russian peasant game are awesome, I, I, I can't enjoy them if there isn't some effort, at least some effort being made to engage me with the with the actual setting of this game uh, so i think for that reason that's why i love lords of water because it does all of that whilst also being a solid mechanical experience yeah,
0: another sound answer <laughs> i love it uh isaac do you have any
1: questions for ben at this time I was just going to add to that, um, and it's not too expensive, so I think I might pick it up. Actually, <laughs> it's
2: yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, pretty popular game, so I imagine you know pr- price for it's relatively low because they're producing a lot of them. But yeah. yeah, I really would recommend Lords of Waterdeep. It's an excellent game, and it's something. It's one of those games that's you can, if you've got like people who aren't gamers, like family members who aren't gamers and stuff, you can sort of. Ease ease them into this one because of that fantasy element, and because it's quite simple. Each turn, you place three or four agents on certain places in Waterdeep, and they go and then they'll get you things. They'll get you adventurers or money or property or whatever. And so, it's really not complicated at all. So, yeah, sorry, I'll sound like I'm. Wizards of the Coast are not paying me. I just want to make this clear uh, to sell you this game. I just do genuinely like it.
1: No, that's fair. Just last question: Is there any dice rolling in this game?
2: Uh, Lords of Waterdeep, no.
1: Yeah, no, nah, no, it's
2: not at all. It's literally just resource management. the 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 strategy comes from um, you can each round only one agent can be sent to each location. So it's mm. kind of like a gold rush of you know, do I go to this place now because I don't I don't think anyone else needs to go there, so I can save it for later. I'll send my agent to somewhere else where I think other people are going to go, and it essentially becomes a game of like muscling each other out of territory.
1: I'm back so, yeah, now. no
2: dust rolling required.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good. Oh, I see. Sounds like a good game. Uh, it says it's going to take like about two hours. <clears throat> so, when you say it's like an easy game to get someone into, it is, it's quite a time investment. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, like,
2: when, when, if you think about the average non-board gaming person and what their experience of board games are... Uh, most of the board games that they play probably last more than two hours, right? Monopoly lasts more than yeah. two hours. Cluedo, probably about two hours. Um, you know, what else have we got? Uh, what are the what are the board games that people normally play? They, Risk, yeah. I suppose a lot of people have. That takes quite a while. Yeah. So, but I think um, those games feel longer because they're not... As soundly designed as most other games right monopoly mm. is usually just after about an hour you all exist so that this one guy can eventually win basically yeah <laughs>
1: yeah
0: uh da, 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 i thought i had something there i lost it um
1: yeah so it i think cool. sorry cool go on I was going to say it's all this talk of lesser board games. It just turned to <laughs> plane, Andy. <laughs> yeah, <works out>. sorry,
2: <laughs> I didn't mean to bring up Monopoly. <laughs> well, I it actually think, to be fair, Monopoly is not a terrible game. But it's real. The real issue with Monopoly is most people play with a bunch of house rules that that like unbalance it, right? Like they collect <laughs> yes. all the cash on free parking, and most people don't auction off properties when someone passes them by, which you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'll give you a tip, right? If anyone ever asks you to play Monopoly uh, and you don't want to play it, but they kind of insisted then what you should do is you should say yes, you should buy a load of streets, you should put four houses on all of them, but not upgrade them to a hotel. Uh, And when there are no houses left in the box, you're not allowed to proxy new stuff in because it says in the rules, that's a housing shortage. And Mm. then you'll slowly and brutally win the game over about five or six
1: hours. And then
2: no one will ever ask you to play Monopoly again, which is really how you win at Monopoly.
1: You've been on on like both fronts. You've won the game, but you've also (laughs) destroyed their souls. It's great.
2: (laughs) Sorry, it's the journalist in me. I'm trying to look at it from multiple angles. That's a cheat code. I love it. <laughs> I'm definitely using <laughs> that. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I, I was saying, I was going to say that I do get the Monopoly similarities with the game as you described it, but obviously all the, all the good parts. Um, so, <laughs> when it comes to making your own board game, how does that transition work? How do you go from, you know, game dev to game journalist to now i want to make board games what obviously that's a lifelong passion but where does that light bulb moment hit
2: so to be honest i've all i kind of always made board games when i was a kid i used to make board games because obviously I, I i loved all kinds of games as many kids do but uh, i didn't i, I didn't have any of the, the things required to make mm. computer games. So I satisfied myself by making board games and I'd make loads of crappy board games. And my my like grandmother and my dad would kind of, you know, give me the time of day to play my terrible board games. And then after a while, my dad sat down with me and he w- helped me make board games. And these games were like quite a bit better. And having an adult sort of get involved and help sort of, it, it made me realize, well, it was my first experience of getting better at, at creating something so it's not it wasn't really like a new thing when I got involved with the Pandemonium Institute. It's something that I've been doing for years kind of as a hobby on the side. Even now and over the last few years, I regularly make my own board games on Tabletop Simulator, which is a, a game, a PC game on Steam, uh, because I just I like making stuff. it make, it's a satisfying pro- process, I think. but um, it really wasn't a transition at all for me, I don't think, because ultimately, computer games and board games they're they're on they're both branches of the same tree right and in fact uh any computer game exists pretty much entirely because board games exist right because yeah. even if you're going and playing fifa right now when you you know boot the ball from just outside the box that's just a bunch of die rolls that's happening that's determining whether or not it's going to go into the back of that net it might be more complicated die rolls it might be influenced by how long you've held down the circle button or whatever but at the end of the day it's generating random numbers and it's finding out if one of those random numbers is high or low enough for that ball to go into the back of the net and that's just dnd basically right assigning numbers to attributes strength speed tackling intelligence whatever it may be that stuff all just comes from dungeons and dragons and from other pen and paper role-playing games of the late 70s so, really, I don't, I, I generally don't make a big distinction between the two. And in fact, I, so I do a few lectures each year at Sheffield Hallam University. And I know for a fact that the lecturers there doing game design, one of the first things they do is get the kids that are coming into that uh, class to design a board game. Because you've got to if you're gonna make a computer game, you've got to at least prototype it out. And the easiest way to do that is using pen and paper and dice and stuff like that. So even an academic and an industry level, board games and computer games are inextricably linked anyway.
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know what? The next time I go to like a party or something, I'm just gonna say exactly what Ben said verbatim. <laughs> <and just type. laughs> yeah, I'm so knowledgeable, guys. Like, yeah, just the best.
0: So the elephant in the room, blood on the clock tower, one of the most popular games in the last couple of years, maybe thanks to the uh, pandemic, but there was a lot to do with good balancing interesting roles and of course the twitch channel the youtube channel and talk to me about your involvement in that channel and how you became again essentially the face
2: of the uk brand so um in 2018 i was working as a games journalist uh but to make sure i had because that's obviously that's freelance work, and freelance work is a little bit unreliable. So to make sure I could definitely pay my bills each month, I was managing a local board game cafe. And one of our favorite things to do at this cafe was when when the day ends, we have a bit of a lock-in, get some beers, and we'll play a bunch of party games and social deduction games. So we'd play stuff, obvious stuff like Werewolf and um, Secret Hitler and things like that, but we'd also play like um, Deception, Murder in Hong Kong and Cosmic Encounter and a bunch of other kind of Games that you don't that you can play when you're a bit drunk because you know they're bluffing games mostly, uh, and we love them. And that year we decided to go to the UK Games Expo together as a as a shop, and uh, you know make some connections or whatever. And so when we were going, I thought, hey, let's look up some of the cool and interesting games that are going to be at the UKGE. And I came across this game, Blood on the Clock Tower, which was a social deduction game just like the ones we liked to play. But oh my God, you're not eliminated when you die, and what's this? Evil can poison good players, and then the storyteller has to lie to them. Uh, and I'm, I'm there thinking this is nonsense. There's no way this is going to be balanced. Uh, but I went and and uh, sort of sidled up to them as soon as I got there and started saying, "Oh God, I, I love you. The idea for your game It's so cool." And and I don't think they were prepared for that at the time because they were just like some random Australians at the UKGE. They were they hadn't really achieved the level of popularity and fame that they have now. Uh, and, but I kept coming back all weekend and playing the game. And by the end of the weekend, I was so in love with it. I asked if I could, you know, get involved in some way. And they said, well, uh, we don't have anyone in the UK with a prototype copy. You live in the middle of the UK in Derby. You, uh, travel around to conventions a lot because you're a journalist. Do you just want to be our volunteer in the UK? And obviously I said, yes. And then three weeks later, a prototype copy of the game arrived on my doorstep. And, uh, and I just started going around running it everywhere and when they kickstarted the game and asked for $60,000 and got nearly $600,000, I was like, right, I'm having a piece of this pie. So I just <laughs> got, got in touch with them and was like, do you guys need a community manager? I'd love to, you know, be that role for you. And they said, yeah. And that's there I am. Suddenly I'm, you know, setting up a YouTube channel, streaming on Twitch. But really all of that, all of that stuff, all of the YouTube channel and the Twitch streams and things like that, I don't think any of that would exist if it wasn't for the pandemic because... When the pandemic hit and everyone was locked down i suddenly couldn't travel around anymore i couldn't run the game at various conventions and things like that and so i thought well what can i do to to keep interest in this game alive and the obvious answer was let's start streaming it on twitch and then because because we did that then an app was developed by someone and then we used that app on twitch and then the app became popular and then i got got contacted by lots of other youtubers and before i know it i'm like in a bloody theatre in Hounslow dressed like some sort of <laughs> druid <laughs> filming, <laughs> filming a game of a Quart Tower with a bunch of YouTube celebrities <laughs> that really just blinked and didn't know what happened
0: <laughs> crazy and I, I think what you said about the game is really why I love it so much so death not being the end of your involvement I think that's such a big USP and I think we'll see that more in games to come and the fact that Drunking or poisoning, uh, is it droisoning, um, basically allows the storyteller to become a, a pseudo player. And they are now allowed to take the role of evil for most of the game and then switch it at the last possible moment. And I think that just gives the game so much personality. And two games with the same amount of tokens and characters won't be the same just because of how crazy the players are and how unique the storyteller can be with their storytelling decisions. And I think that really makes or breaks the game.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one thing that anyone who has done any amount of storytelling on the Clock Tower will agree with is that it's a lot more Dungeon Master than Referee. Uh, I always compare Clock Tower a lot to pen and paper RPGs because a lot of there's a lot of similarity there. You are, as the guy running it, you have to make decisions, and those decisions are inevitably going to influence uh, the way the game plays out, and you want everybody at your table to have a good time and that's always in the back of your mind. But you also have to acknowledge that in order for them to have a good time, they want to feel as though they've been challenged. They want to feel as though they've in some way contributed to the overall narrative. And so really, it is you can't just show up with a mindset where you're just going to run the game. You're just going to referee it. You really do have to get involved and, and make decisions and own those decisions. And I think that's what like people who are into dungeon mastery and people who like to be GMs I think are in, in, like naturally going to be very... What's the word? They're going to be very sold after they've run a game of mm. blow on the Clock Tower because it, it scratches all of those itches in a way that no other game I've ever run before does.
0: Yeah, exactly. And those snap decisions. I, I do really commend you when you come up with those on the fly because <laughs> uh, a lot of those seem like really hard ones to make. Um, for example, whether a, a Slayer you're doing a slayer shot on a uh, recluse whether you register that as a demon or not and you don't have a lot of time to you know think about what each branch will lead to you're just gonna make that snap decision um are there any tricks or tips that help you just make the right decision or make the decision decision that benefits town or the content the most
2: but i think um it's important to note first of all that i've screwed up probably more times than a lot of people have even run a game so i'm not some sort of you know big brain genius in fact i'm i'm a bit of a dummy to be honest with you i'm not really that i'm not that smart at all i talk a big game i've got a flowery vocabulary but i'm really not that that night intelligent i don't have the ability to see all possible worlds like some people that i that i know do do they do have that but i don't have that but the the i think the trick to um get making the right decision is to buy yourself time by talking a load of rubbish that's what i usually mm-hmm. do so like if in that situation that you uh, gave there where it's like the slayer shoots the recluse do we let the recluse register as the demon uh, or do we have them die i'll just immediately go right what's your weapon of choice and while i ignore them i'll think about you know right. what i'm going to do and then perhaps if i still haven't made a decision i'll be like okay so you shoot your crossbow and wait for it you know leave a gap or whatever but all of this stuff it. Lo- I imagine it looks to some degree like I'm being a showman, but really it's just me trying to buy as much time as I can to try and make the right decision. That's, that's uh, and, cool. uh, <laughs> and, yeah, ultimately that's the best piece of advice you can give, and that applies to all of Clock Tower. Just take your time. If you're running this game, take your time. If it's the night phase, don't worry about rushing through it take your time take as much time as you need to make sure you've done everything right and when you've done everything go down the list again and make sure you've done everything right because nobody's gonna care if you take a bit longer they're only gonna care if you screw up so take all the time you need that's the best piece of advice i can give to anybody starting off as a storyteller for clock
1: tower no oh, i love that because awesome. uh, i've got my copy and i do want to run a couple games at some point so uh, yeah that's some good advice um, I'm, I'm sure you'd go... make a
2: brilliant storyteller, Isaac, because you are a smart guy, unlike <laughs> me. You're a pretty clever dude.
1: <laughs> no, I appreciate that. but I think you're setting yourself a little bit short, Ben, because you've <laughs> created this uh, empire in the UK for the Pandemonium Institute, and not not just anyone can do that. So, uh, well done. Thank it's, you. Uh, that's really that's ha- That has
2: vaguely evil connotations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the em- <Isaac's> empire. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because he said it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know what I realized? Like, I love it when I get a character and I can just be honest the whole game, and everyone thinks I'm evil because I don't have to do anything. The game just runs itself for me, and I can just chill out. It's great.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is a lot stressful, right? Because when when you're good, you sort of you know it doesn't really matter if you die, uh, and 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 ultimately you've done your part and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas if you're evil, it really does matter if you die, but you have to come across as though you don't care if you die whilst also making it look like you're trying to solve a game that you are absolutely not trying to solve, <laughs> which is really quite difficult to do.
1: Oh, yeah, it's pretty tough sometimes. Um, I think I had one game where it kind of just played itself for me because I think I was the Nodashi, but one of my bluffs was Empath. So I literally went to my neighbor, who was the um, the fortune teller. Perfect. He trusts <sighs> me. Went to the chef, who, again, poisoned. He trusted me. So it was just great. I just chilled out, let my millions <laughs> do whatever. And it was like three evil people and the fortune teller like, trusted me at the end of the game. Someone worked it out, but town didn't believe them. So I just sat back and watched the chaos. It was great. It was a oh, that's brilliant game. as well, that yeah. is. Because
2: the, the chef is like, happy to die as well after that so you can get a read on on the next guy along right (laughs) and the fortune teller well he's going to think everyone but use the demon because you're the one person that's definitely not going to register as a demon oh yeah yeah that's (laughs) beautiful you got a a free lunch there that was beautiful
0: (laughs) one of the worst feelings is when you're right you have the solve and absolutely no one will listen to you no one will buy your shit that has got to be some real madness inducing stuff right there
2: yeah, but the beauty is, after the game ends and the storyteller proves you right, you can then be really, really smug about it for the rest <laughs> <Yeah>. of the <laughs> day.
1: <laughs> but I think that's another thing that's really beautiful about the game. Like It's it's a lot like poker in that sense because it's not just about solving... Like You could solve all the games in the world, but if no one trusts you in the nicest possible way, you're a bit useless because you're not helping town. Um, so you've got to like convey it where... You actually get people on your side, um, get people to trust you. So a lot of the game is the social aspect as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love board games. It's the social part. So when you're playing Clock Tower correctly, it is just mostly a social game. Like you don't even, you don't hold anything. You don't really do anything. It's only the GM that like has props. It's literally just a group of friends or enemies by the end of the night, <laughs> just uh, having a chat. It's great.
2: Yeah and I think what's cool about Clock Tower is the skills that make you a good good player are the same skills required to make you a good evil player in a lot of senses because you have to if you can figure out you know the various worlds that could have happened and find out which one of them is happening then you reverse engineer that as an evil player and serve that up on a plate and once you realize that uh, it means that unlike a lot of games like if you're if you're playing you know everyone who plays FIFA right has got that one mate who smashes everyone else at FIFA and that's never going to change he's always going to be that guy whereas if you if you transfer that concept over to clock tower the players that are better than everyone else the the most sort of uh competent players in your circle you don't know what team they're on so that competence, while extremely valuable on your team, suddenly becomes something that you fear if you think they're on the other team. And that nerfs them, essentially, right? Because they can't then just dominate everything. Because if you know they know what they're talking about, then you also know that they absolutely are capable of sounding like they know what they're talking about when they're actually trying to sell you up the river. And I think it does, Clock Tower does this thing where it's kind of a great equalizer in that sense. And that's why I've seen... I've run games where, like, a nine-year-old kid has wiped the floor with everyone just because, you know, he's a nine-year-old kid, so he can't possibly be coming up with all this stuff, you know, just pulling it out of his arse. And, you know, similarly, I've seen a group of extremely competent players all on the good team get demolished because they were all paranoid about each other. And I think that's, yeah, I just love that because it means that anyone can play. And that's ultimately the ethos of Clock Tower. Everyone can play. You're never not playing. Every, you know, everyone's always playing and everyone's always welcome and everyone can always win. I think that's
0: the ethos of every game. or oh, it should be the ethos of every game. It should be balanced and it should be easy to play and difficult to master in some cases. And it just welcome in opening. Um, I, I think that uh, you both said really good things about um, the mechanics of blood and the clock tower. And I think that's why the, the three base scripts, trouble brewing and sex and violence, Bad Moon Rising, they work really well because you got uh, Trouble Britain, TB, that's the very mechanical game, that's the puzzle game. And that's perfect for you know first timers and newbies. And when you get into the games like Sex and Violets and uh, Bad Moon Rising, where mechanics don't matter as much and it is more the social aspect, and that's where you get the true blend of bluffing and the poker aspect, as you mentioned, Isaac. And that's where like my eyes light up and just these psychotic liars just, <laughs> whether it's for uh, the good team or the evil team um it's just entertaining more so than anything and that's what i want from a game just to be entertained just to have fun
2: so yeah i agree like I, I like social i'm much better like i said i'm not that smart i'm much better at social stuff i can't build all the world worlds and that's why i love uh bad moon rising in particular because that game that script is pure chaos and 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 that's again why we've got it's got a little bit of something for everybody anyway sorry i totally cut you off there you were gonna say no, something. that's fine that is fine <laughs> <laughs> um
0: i mean you keep saying that you're not this smart guy but i remember several games where you have literally bossed it um this game where what, <coughs> did you make a, a virgin and then you, you you made a mayor or something and you just got an instant win. So, I mean, there
2: have been stomps. Been stomps. Yeah, but I've been for- I'm fortunate that I get to play a lot of Blood on the Clock Tower. You know, if you repeatedly smash your face into a door, it will eventually open. <laughs> You'd hope so. <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make you good at opening doors. It just means that you've tried a lot, right?
1: <laughs> so, uh, Isaac, did you have any more Blood on the
0: Clock Tower questions?
1: Well, I guess you've already answered this, Ben. Um, I was going to ask, you know, what makes a, a good storyteller? But I guess you've sort of about, like, answered it. Um, you've explained, you know, what you need to do to to control the game, um, to make sure everyone's happy. But if uh, there's anything else you'd like to add, yeah, what would you say makes a good storyteller?
2: I think, um, so w- when most people approach running any kind of game, their main concern is knowing all the mechanics, mm. you know, being prepared for every situation. But in actuality, I don't think really that matters a great deal because you can always look that stuff up on the fly. But I think really the only thing that matters about being a good storyteller or indeed any kind of GM is being invested in whether or not the players are having fun. If the thing that makes that, that gives you pleasure is knowing that they're having fun, then that innately makes you a good storyteller and no amount of reading the rules is ever going to give someone that. I remember distinctly when I first got my prototype copy and I'd run games for... Um, for a group of players at my local board game cafe, which I was working at at the time. And um, these guys always had a good time. And it didn't seem to matter whether I screwed up, which I regularly did, or if I nailed it. They always had a good time. And the reason they were having a good time is because they were enjoying spending time and hanging out with each other. And the game was just like a, a catalyst for that to happen. You know, we could have been having beers in a pub. We could have been watching a film. The game, while well, obviously a good game, I hope people will agree, that was just there to facilitate these people enjoying each other's company. And so being a good storyteller is 99% making sure everybody enjoys each other's company. And that kind of thing is a lot more difficult if these people don't know each other. I quickly learned that running games at conventions where you know it's easy when 10 or 12 of your mates who all know each other are going to have impassioned debates and call each other liars, that's fine because they all know each other. But when nine complete strangers are sat facing each other in a circle at a convention, um, there is a potentiality for people to get a little bit shirty, right? Someone might say something, other people might not be quite as you know willing to tolerate impassioned statements and whatnot. And when you're in a situation like that, it's really important to be invested in making these guys enjoy each other's company. And I quickly realized that the way to do that was to, ham it up a bit so you know i'd give the whole you know all oh, the residents of ravenswood bluff and it's a spooky night and you know blah 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 blah, and doing all that stuff and then when people died i'd just quit things and be like oh you know dave, dave with his metallica t-shirt on you are for whom the bell tolls and you know and then he died stuff like that so that all of a sudden dave who died is not just a man who died everyone else knows him as dave the metalhead and dave the metalhead is having a good time even though he's died because I've, you know, acknowledged that we share a sort of cultural interest together. And yeah, sorry, I'm probably just rambling here, but the point I'm trying to make is, um, (laughs) yeah, being aware of and getting involved in the minutiae of the various personalities that are playing is the best route to making sure they all have a good time because it humanizes them all to each other.
1: Love that. Yeah, absolutely love that. And I guess um, to touch on what you said about, you know, when strangers get together... I guess it's a nice way for them to bond as well. You Definitely,
2: couldn't... yeah. Yeah. We regularly had people at that board game cafe who would show up because they knew we were running party games. And they they would they all it became a scene after a while. They all became friends with each other. They all used to hang out with each other. Uh, a month and a half ago, two of them got married and they oh, invited God. they asked me to come and run Blood on the Clock Tower at their wedding because it was the thing <laughs> that they met and bonded over, which was really cool, really very, very honoured to have been invited to do that. Oh,
1: lovely! Was it a very small wedding, or did you do Clocktower for like two hundred people?
2: It was. It wasn't a small wedding. It wasn't a huge wedding. It was just your normal, average-sized wedding. But they were—they are both big board game fans, and a lot of their social circle are into board games. So they actually had a board game-based um, wedding reception. Oh, so you know, wow. there was a few like mums and dads and whatnot who went that into it, and they just happily played, you know, snap. And drank Wkds <laughs> or whatever, you know. Yeah. But uh, but the, most of us nerds were playing, and we were regularly having 15, 20 player games back to back for the whole of the evening. But yeah, it was it was cool. It was a lot of fun. Got very drunk.
1: Sounds like a great night. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. And just a quick one. You mentioned earlier that you uh you did um Clocktower on Twitch before the before the app. Um. And I assume you mean the Clocktower Tower.online online app. Yeah. Um. So yeah. How did that work? Because I can't imagine playing it any other way.
2: Well, if you go onto our YouTube channel, you'll see they're actually uploaded. And uh, what Ooh. I what we did for our yeah. first ever—it doesn't look good, <laughs> t- I t- honestly. If you if you've not if anyone's listening to this and you've not seen our YouTube videos, start on one of the later ones because they're not great. But what we did was we used Roll Twenty, which is a, a web app for running pen and paper RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons. And I basically just created, um. a a spot for every player that was playing and i created i got all the tokens from trouble brewing and i put them on the gm layer so that only i could see them and the players couldn't see them and then i assigned them and i literally just used a big arrow that would click and drag and point at everyone and be like okay john's nominated uh, Anne, get ready dave do you want to vote for Anne? yes Keith, do you want to vote for Anne? It just went around the circle with a big arrow. Oh. It was it was very, very, very basic. Um, but we only did that a couple of times before uh, Brain made the ClockTower.online app. And we are actually now, and this is, this is the first time I've announced this publicly, um, by the time this goes out, there will probably be our official app on the market because we are Ooh. intending to launch that on Tuesday the 30th of August oh, um, wow. via wow. Patreon. Yeah we we're going to set up a patreon and anyone who wants to uh back us on patreon can help us develop this app that is currently in beta but it's great it's got like webcam support it's got um chat support it's got um animations and all sorts of cool stuff anyway sorry i'll stop being a corporate soulless whore <laughs> now and go back <laughs> no 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 i want oh, no more actually more away <laughs>
1: Because like oh. right now, the um Clocktower Online app is really good. I think it's an amazing way to play Clock tower. So like, how how will the app, I guess, improve? Um, help. Well, how will the Pandemonium Institute app improve the uh, already existing Clock Tower Online app? So
2: um, to give everyone kind of because I, I imagine a lot of listeners might not be familiar with the with the app. Currently, the app basically has a, a capability for everyone to sit in the circle, have tokens handed to them, and they're able to vote when it comes to voting time. And that's great. Um, But there there are a lot of shortcomings of that app. Chief amongst them, you have to use something else to communicate with each other. So most people will use Discord or Zoom or whatever. And when it comes to the night phase and the storyteller needs to give information to the players, you need some way to do that. You'll either privately message them or some people have got elaborate discord servers set up where players can get thrown into secret rooms and the storyteller individually visits them. But the official app actually just enables you to click a player and send them the information that they get in the night, just as you would when you're running it in person. It's got all the cards that say things like these are your minions or, this character selected you, or all those kind of little cards that come with the board game, they're all in there and you can just click a player and send them all that stuff and they can click a bunch of options to respond to you if they need to. So all of that stuff can be done very, very quickly and very, very easily. It's also got built-in chat rooms. So there's a town square room where everybody can be and a bunch of private rooms for people to go to private chats. It has the ability to privately whisper to the people sat either side of you without anybody else noticing Hmm. Um, it has webcam support so when the players are in in their circles you can see their their face and their webcam and stuff. Um, I won't keep going on but basically a lot of like quality of life stuff that the free app doesn't have this one does have and it's being developed by the guy who developed the free app so oh, it's, oh, sort oh, of, it's just nice. building on top of all that stuff basically yeah.
1: like, um, this is just a weird one but like I mean you mentioned Rng before and then you also mentioned how you can whisper to your neighbor. In my head, I'm thinking that's going to be a really powerful ability because at least in real life, you can catch someone doing a whisper, um, which is why it's okay to take that risk. But if you can just, like, private message your neighbour, uh, that seems like a risk-free way to get information out of there. Is there, like, a sort of dice roll in the back that says you can do a private whisper, but maybe everyone will, like, see it? Um, uh, Currently there's,
2: no, current there's no RNG or anything like that, but these are yeah. features that you can switch off if you prefer not to play with them. Because I think ultimately everyone's got their own kind of house rules for their table, right? And everyone runs mm. everything a little bit differently. Um, but I think out, out, the, way we're, the way we're looking at the app is Blood on the Clock Tower was never a game that was designed to be played digitally. It was designed to be played in person, and a lot of the rules and mechanics work better in person inevitably because that's how it was designed but the app is the app that we're developing is trying to make it as much like the in-person game as we possibly can whilst also giving people the tools and the options to mess around with that turn things on and off that they want and don't want it can be run as a much more digital focus game if you like with private messaging for everyone or it can be run as a much tighter more sort of in-person style experience with no private messaging at all and Everyone visibly seeing everyone go off for chats. But yeah, ultimately the ethos is let's give everyone the opportunity to run the game the way they re- want to run it. And also build a community around it. That's why we've chosen to run it through Patreon. Because we want to build a community around the game. Because games like this live and die on their community. It's not it's not a game where that you can just pick up and play with two people, right? You need to be part of a wider group to get your money's worth out of Blood on the Clock Tower. Absolutely. And I, I
0: agree with one thing there. It- I thing, uh when you said the game is was designed to be played in person and I think I prefer that just because you can see people's visual tales as well as their audio tales. And I think that adds a another huge aspect to the game and maybe people have certain tales where, like they scratch their face when they're lying. So I think that adds a lot more excitement and uh risk to the game playing in person, but um it, it's a, as Isaac said, it's an absolute empire. It's a monster of a game. And I very much like the idea of this app. And I'm, I'm just in love that Brain is back to develop it. Because that app that you know we've seen on the uh, Twitch channel and on YouTube, absolutely immense. Chef kiss.
2: Yeah, it is. It is an incredible achievement. And to be honest with you, I've got to give like shout out to Brain really. That we wouldn't be. A lot of people say, "Oh, you know, you've done really well on YouTube and Twitch. The game, uh, you know, has exploded because of that." But really, the, we were only able to do that because Brain made that tool. And so, yeah, he re- like he deserves as much credit as me or anyone else for having made Blood on the Clock Tower as popular as it is now. And he, he didn't ask him to make it, he just made it off his own back. For free. Just made it for fun in his free time, yeah. Very talented guy. What a guy! <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so, uh, quickly, I, I'm gonna spring this on both of you. I would like if you could quickly name your favorite townsfolk, outsider, minion, and demon and why.
1: Ooh, Should
0: awesome. We
2: start with Ben. Okay, I'm going to go backwards, if that's all right. So I'm going to start with Demon. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> keep in mind, if you're listening to this uh, podcast in 2029 or something, uh, we had much less characters back then uh, before the <laughs> Ant people took over. So uh, keep that in mind. But um, yeah, I think my favorite demon is Shabaloth. I think a lot of people know this because, I, to me, the Shabaloth is the essence of what Blood on the Clock Tower is all about. It's a demon where uh, the, the player gets a lot of choice. They get to choose two people to die, uh, but the storyteller may resurrect or regurgitate one of them the following night. And that, to me, just is the perfect example of the melding of player agency and storyteller agency coming together into a really fun, cool character uh, that, that can create a puzzle around it. Why did this person come back? Was it a Shabaloth regurgitation? Did the professor bring them back? There's, there's a lot going on there. So that's my favourite demon. My favourite minion... This is going to... I'm sorry, I'm going to be boring here. That's but good. my favourite minion is the Baron, uh, at least in terms of playing it, okay. for a number of reasons. Reason number one, um, it's a de- it's a minion that has already done their job before the game even begins. And for someone who likes social over mechanical plays, that's brilliant. Because if I pull Baron... I immediately think, great! I have no responsibility here whatsoever. I can do whatever I want. I can I can tank my own reputation if I like. I can fight with my other minion and and be visibly seen to. I'll be arguing with them. I can. I've, I've got I've got total carte blanche to play this character however I want, and I really like that. And also, um, it actually is well. It was the most powerful minion in our playtesting. Uh, out of oh. all the minions during playtesting, the Baron was the one that that won most evil games percentage-wise because it adds in two outsiders and that takes away yeah. two very powerful townsfolk and adds in two detrimental outsiders. So it, it stands to reason that it would be yeah the most um, the most powerful, I guess. Um, my favorite outsider. This one changes a lot, to be honest. Um, but I think at the moment my favorite outsider is probably um the. Puzzle Master. I don't know if you guys have seen Mm. that. It's an experimental one. But it is a fun way to play. Basically, the ability is, one player is drunk for the whole game, even if you die. Once per game, you can guess who it is, and if you get it right, you learn who the demon is. But if you get it wrong, the storyteller lies to you about who the demon is. And there's just so much going on there, because... Again, you've not really got that much responsibility. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win the game with the Puzzle Master because even if you do get it right, you're probably not gonna believe you've got it right anyway. Um, yeah. But it, but it's still a fun little. You've got a little thing to do, and no one's gonna go around um, demanding that you justify why you're still alive. You can just be like, oh, "I'm the Puzzle Master. I want to solve my puzzle." You know, and it's it's very, it's just a very chill character to play. And, and also, you can just choose someone who you know isn't drunk and learn who the demon isn't, which is which is quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think finally my favorite townsfolk is probably the Amnesiac because I just love running it. I love coming up with my own ability for them. I love watching them try and solve it. Sometimes I'll just wake them up and do something random. Uh, I haven't even made an ability for them. And then <laughs> just see what they say. And and if they if they come up with an interesting ability idea around day three or four that lines up with what I've said, brilliant! That's your ability. Let's keep going, uh, <laughs> because you can do that if
1: you want to. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm just gonna lie and say uh, I do. I kill the demon. I'm just gonna like, just throw out really powerful abilities. <laughs>
0: cool, Isaac. what about you?
1: Um. That's a good question, actually. I think I might do what Ben did. Uh, I think I might go with the Poe, just because, especially in the base script the Poe is in, like, yeah, you can charge up, but there are so many other abilities that will hide the fact that you've charged up. Like, I think I've charged up before and killed no one or, like, one person, so you don't always get all three kills, so it kind of keeps you hidden, and... It doesn't keep you hidden and you do kill three people. Who cares? You've killed three people and more are going to die. So it doesn't matter if you get rumbled. Um, I think favourite minion I'll come back to because my favourite outsider has got to be the Saint. Um, I love that no one's going to believe me. So I'm just like, yeah, kill me. Let's go. Because here's the thing, right? For me, it's a win on two fronts. Um, Either I don't die, which is great because now I can help the good team or the good team kills me, and well, fuck you guys, you've lost. That's <laughs> what you get. Um, I love that you
0: class that as winning, by the way. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, like, I think Saint is just a really... Oh, I feel like the Saint is the the outsider version of the Goblin, because with the Goblin, you're just like, I'm the Goblin. Come on, kill me. And you can just chill out. Um, And then I think favourite uh, townsfolk, this is a really hard one, because there are lots of, like, really powerful roles, but... I think it's gonna to have to be the monk. Because the monk's got a lot of interesting interactions. So I didn't know this, but um in one of the games of Clock Tower I played with uh, No Bard, um, I found out that the monk just invalidates the demon like completely, um, which is so powerful, especially when mixed mix with other scripts. Um, and what I really love to do if it's like trouble brewing, like if I know. That like the demon's gonna try and star pass. I just protect the demon and then they go nowhere and they're like, oh no, I'm, I'm the soldier. Or oh, there was a monk somewhere. It's like, oh all right, you're on thin ice there, mate. Um so yeah, like I like the, the monk's utility. And I think if I go back to minion, um this is a really hard one because I weirdly enough, I used to really enjoy playing the minion, but there's there's I think there's a lot like a lot of people say that playing the minion is is a lot more calming, but if there's an imp, for example it's not because here's you causing trouble and being an absolute degenerate and then the imp star passes and you're like oh crap i've got to (laughs) (laughs) to salvage this somehow um and like if you're the imp like sorry if you're the minion it might be a case where maybe you can't speak to your demon so you've got no bluffs so you're just kind of like you don't really know what you're doing you don't want to step on your demon's toes um i think as a minion like yeah like you there's less responsibility but at the same time you still have to be there for your demon you still have to do certain things to make sure your demon's like safe you can't just be blasé throughout the the whole game um at least with the demon like you're kind of leading the charge so you either lead your team to defeat but like it's been your choice or you lead them to victory um so minions hard but i think Oh, I did what you did, Ben. I just kind of stalled for time there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go.
2: It's good, right? Use it in all walks you. of life. Do you want salt and sauce without that, mm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Yeah, I think my favorite one is going to have to be... Uh, do you know I might just go basic and just say The Witch. Because it can just get you out of, like, tight spots. Um, you can just make the game a little bit chaotic, uh, and like I've seen some really cool witch plays done in the past. Like um, I think someone turned maybe one of the evil team into the I don't know into the virgin or something and won that way. Maybe not because I think I can't remember what they did, but they did something to mechanically guarantee victory because I think um, like it couldn't be stopped. The storyteller couldn't do anything about it, so it was just a case where I think the next day um. Maybe it was a,
2: and I've seen this that you're talking about. There was a game that I was in mm-hmm. uh, where the pit hag turned one of the minions into a townsfolk and one of the other minions into the virgin, and so the evil townsfolk nominated the virgin on the final day, got themselves killed, and an end of the game.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. Exactly that. Uh, oh, <laughs> and to to retcon what I said, I meant the the pit hag, not the witch. Um oh uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's a that's a pretty cool ability. Um yeah, I think that's me. Um what about you, Andy? Can't leave you out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, thank you. Um uh, I think townsfolk will be Poppy Grower just because I really love that as a starting role and completely blocks off one of the cool mechanics of Blood in the Clock Tower, it flips the game on its head. And the the small minority who know everything, or you know who know the alignments of everyone, don't know that anymore. And then you have demon and minion mistrusting each other, and it's just more chaos. And um, I think it was one of the games that I watched on Nora's board, actually, where if you poison the poppy grower and then they die, the evil team don't know each other, and it's That's just right. another.
2: It's another layer of chaos on this chaotic sandwich. Well, and- how does that work? Because the Poppygrow's ability <coughs> is that the evil team aren't introduced to each other, but if you die, they are introduced to each other. So mm. if the Poppy girl is poisoned when they die, they aren't introduced oh. to each other.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. Can I know, right? It's brutal.
2: I think the Poppy girl is the most powerful townsfolk in all of Blood and Clock Tower because it's absolute. It's just crippling for the evil team.
0: Mm yeah it's rough i think it used to be the chambermaid just because of how um how it worked i just love that and i think the best townsfolk are the ones that can be bluffed as well to great devastating effect poppy grow i don't know how well that works as a bluff but i'm sure there are some maniacally experienced players who've used it to great effect but yeah poppy grow is my favorite townsfolk um outside is hard i think that's the hardest one for me I would probably go with golem because i think it's the perfect balancing act where it's a it's a reverse something i can't remember what the role is but the first time you nominate someone if they're not the demon they die which is a great uh source of verifying someone and then you can't nominate for the rest of the game so it's like the uh the punishment for using your ability so if you are a golem who's used you don't want to be in final three so, again, you know, that's a that's a good character wiped out and that could cost the good team or it could uh, secure victory if the person they nominate doesn't die. Um, I think Minion will be Serenovus because it used to be Pit for the longest time. But then I think Serenovus is actually more fun because it doesn't actually make them the character. They just have to make <laughs> up shit. <laughs> and that is so much fun. Um, Having to come up with, I don't know, an amnesiac ability or savant info or fisherman information, having to come up with that on the fly and um, be convincing, yeah, that's a lot of fun for me, especially if I'm not playing and just watching. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Um, I also like the fact that storytellers run madness differently. So some storytellers will run it in the way that you have to claim to at least one person, but you have to claim that you are this character. And then other storytellers will run it as if you have to play as if you are that character and certain roles you won't claim because it makes no sense or mutant. Um, so I, I, I like that as well. So you do see vastly different plays with the same characters, same ability. And uh, Demon Fangu just because I think it's uh, probably got some of the most utility because if you, if, you, <laughs> if you know there's an outsider, you can just off yourself. Um, And uh, I think I saw a game where a monk protected a Fangu, so they didn't actually transfer over, but the person still died, I think. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of utility there with the Fangu. It's one of the most fun ones that I've seen played.
2: The Fangu um, initially didn't used to have that the first time bit in its power, in its ability, so it could just happen over and over again. So I remember back in the early days when we were doing a playtesting game and I was the fangu and by the end of the game we had four evil fangus uh, <laughs> because we had four sorry we had five evil fangus because there was four outsiders in the game uh, and I just I quickly figured out who they were I attacked one of them and then I approached them and was like right welcome to the club the key's this thing <laughs> attack him, and then I approached him the next day I was like, welcome to the Fangu society he's an outsider, attack him, and then by the end it was like, five Fangus, three minions and a handful of good guys (laughs) which is obviously why you can no longer do that
0: (laughs) yeah, that can't run but that's the beauty of playtesting, right? and early access and all of that stuff you get to practice stuff, and things won't always work out, and that's the fun of games exactly, I think
1: for that reason, house rules are needed, because I want to play this version of Clock (laughs) (laughs) well, this has been a very, very
0: fun discussion, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having I- me. Of course. Isaac, do you have any final questions for Ben?
1: Yeah, actually. Um, I think you were saying how the Poppy Grow is like one of the strongest, if not the strongest, in Clock Tower. Um, but then what about the Lycanthorpe? Lycanthorpe? Lycanthrope, however you pronounce it. Yeah. Lycanthrope,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean yeah. the Lycanthrope is very is very powerful, um, without a shadow of a doubt. But it's weak because it's easily bluffed. Uh, the like when yeah. when when someone says I'm the lycanthrope and I I'm the reason you died last night, there's a fifty percent chance that they're the lycanthrope and there's a fifty percent chance that they're an evil player pretending to be the lycanthrope. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the poppy grower uh, is incentivized to not come out. Uh, and on a script where you have characters like poppy grower and you know character uh, maybe the damsel and stuff like that players will naturally be more tolerant of people not wanting to claim what they are. And so the poppy grower is a lot more powerful because it doesn't you don't have to uh, justify yourself basically as the poppy grower. you just immediately have had a massive impact on the game without any effort at all. And all you've got to do now is is like just chill out and not draw too much attention yeah. to yourself, which is the opposite of what the lycanthrope does uh, so I think yeah, while the lycanthrope can be, more powerful than the poppy grower, I think that in terms of like net average, the poppy grower has more effect. But that, that's purely my subjective opinion. Like I've got nothing to back that up at all.
1: I mean, you do have the title of Daddy Ben, so that, <laughs> that holds yeah. a lot of weight.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't. I think if being called Daddy was uh, made you an expert on blowing the clock tower, <laughs> I'd, I'd probably be out of a job.
0: <laughs>
1: <sighs>
0: Thanks again, Ben. Um, actually do have one more question go for it if someone has been watching this podcast or listening to it and they're like "Mm, i might give this blood on the clock tower game a try what would you give as advice to a new player
2: um so there there are two ways that you can play blood on the clock tower uh, online digitally or in person uh if it comes if it's an in-person game that you're looking for then go and check at your local clubs, your local communities, just local board game stores, cafes, bars, uh, social media. There's always people looking to run games all over the world right now. The game's just launched and the community's just being built. So it's a good time to get into it. Um, if you're looking to play online, there are a bunch of great communities. There's the unofficial Discord server, which is probably the largest community. There's, uh, there will be our Patreon server, which is which will be a great place to learn and play. Um, but ultimately, yeah, if you if you're interested and you want to get a copy, head over to bloodontheclocktower.com and buy one. But yeah, um, there are lots of communities. Sorry, that's a, that's a pretty terrible answer. Why are you holding up a katan box? <laughs> Sorry, wrong box. <one. laughs> can you imagine? Advertising 101. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's loads of places that you can play, and you can play it any way you like. So just uh, stick your neck out and see what's local to you. Exactly.
0: And it's a game, so have fun whether you win or lose. Absolutely. I forgot about that bit. It's quite important. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure there's going to be people out here, Ben, a lot of them who, knew, who do know who you are, and some of them who don't know who you are. Where can they keep up with you if they'd like to know more about Daddy Ben Burns?
2: Uh, I am on Twitter at, uh, at bunjiman 17 So that's B-U-N-G-E-E-M-A-N-1-7. Uh, you can check out our uh, YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com forward slash Blood on the Clock Tower. I think that's true. I hope that's true. See, this is me stalling right now because I'm typing it in on the computer (laughs) that I'm sat. It is. Blood on the Clock Tower.
1: Uh, (laughs) YouTube.com,
2: Blood on the Clock Tower. Uh, And finally, twitch.tv forward slash The Pandemonium Institute is where we have three streams a week, live games, three times a week. Always worth checking in. Uh, We usually try and walk everybody through the things that we're doing as we storytell so that everyone can sort of understand what's going on and learn a f- thing or two. So yeah, plenty of places to get in touch with me or see me run games.
0: Yeah, and I can verify for that. Yeah, definitely very helpful storytellers when it comes to the Twitch channels and the chat as well. If you don't know why a certain interaction or a certain rule has been bent, Um yeah, they're very helpful and and uh, insightful in terms of why that's happened. Thank you. And of course, all of that will be in the description, as well as a link to purchase a copy of Blood on the Clock Tower yourself and the rules and the wiki. But uh, you can also follow the Streamcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, Streamcast underscore. Subscribe to our YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Streamcast. Follow us on Twitch, where we stream Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, twitch.tv forward slash Streamcast TV. And you can listen to this podcast on spotify apple and wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure you check out our website thestreamcast.co.uk for our blog and upcoming events information that is all uh, isaac i haven't forgotten anything have i
1: you're my uh, guy here i don't think so i think you got everything right, yeah, cool, yeah Cool. i'm getting better at this Just all right. a copy of katana and hope for the best
2: isaac yeah <laughs> i was gonna but i thought we were planning there was
1: too much all
0: right take care of yourselves everyone stay safe and we'll see you on the next streamcast boom there you have it thank you so much for watching and or listening to this podcast thank you to ben burns of the pandemonium institute for gracing us with his presence and giving us insights golden nuggets of information not just about blood on the clock tower but about his entire career and how we got into the Pandemonium Institute altogether. Now, I promised you at the start of this episode that I will tell you how you could enter the giveaway to win your own copy of Blood on the Clock Tower. And all you have to do is click on the link in the podcast description, in the comments of YouTube, or on our Twitter and Instagram page, Streamcast underscore. The winner will be announced on our social media platforms. So make sure you follow the aforementioned pages so you find out whether you have won a copy of Blood on the Clock Tower. At this point, I want to let you know, you must be a resident of the UK to be eligible to apply and win this game. But there are more giveaways to come if you don't win Blood on the Clock Tower. So don't be disheartened, don't worry. Just keep following us on Twitter and Instagram to find out more about these giveaways that we are doing over the Christmas period. Now, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Take care of yourselves, and I hope to see you on the next Streamcast.